Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So how many of you have been here for um, two or more of the other lectures? Good, most of you. So I wasn't able to be at them, but I reviewed the, the slides and talks from the other lectures, and I see that you've had a, a very thorough education in stress and stress physiology and um, sort of mind-body aspects and medical aspects of stress. As a matter of fact, if any of you who have been here for all of those lectures have a much better education than most medical doctors in stress physiology and in dealing with stress. Um, how many of you are health professionals? Are there any of you that are also health professionals? Okay, good. So as I go around the country and talking about the art and science of mind-body medicine and talk to doctors groups and so on, one of the first things I often ask them is, you know, how many of you think that mind-body interactions are critical factors in your patient's health and well-being? And without any hesitation, audiences of doctors, uh, what do you think happens with audiences of doctors? How many of them do you think raise their hand? Yeah, 100%, immediately, without thinking about it, without looking around to get approval from everybody else or see what everybody else says. Everybody just shoots their hand up. And then I ask them, well, how many of you have ever had any education or training in teaching your patients how to use their mind-body connection to reduce stress or to help with their, uh, with their health or illness-related matters, and about 2% of people raise their hands at that point. And a lot of the things that you've actually seen in this or heard in this series is education of a higher nature, unfortunately, than many, of, many medical professionals get or make use of on a day-to-day -day basis. So what I hope to do tonight is to take about 30 to 40 minutes maximum and um, and review some of what I think of as sort of stress management 101, and a lot of this will be, some of this will be repetition. I don't feel like I have to drill very deeply into it because of what you've already heard, but to kind of review it and frame it from the, from the perspective of a, a primary care practitioner, because I'm a general practitioner. I've been practicing close to 40 years now, and practicing as both a medical doctor and an acupuncturist, and as somebody who tries to integrate mind-body health into my practice. And then what I'd like to do is offer you a chance to experiment with some gu uh, guided imagery technique that I've found to be very, very helpful. I'm going to talk about some others that are very helpful that you may have been exposed to. But I want to share one with you that not that many people are aware of that I think in many cases is one of the most useful approaches I've learned. And I'll give you a chance to explore that and experiment with that for yourself and then have a little bit of commentary on that from me and then have uh, plenty of time for us to talk and for you to ask questions or share your experiences and so on and so forth. So let's see if we can accomplish that. So as you've heard in a number of different ways, you know, we used to talk, a lot of people talk about stress as what happens to us and certainly there are a lot of things that happen to us that are stimuli for stress response, but you know now after sitting through the other lectures that stress is actually a response to what happens. It's a term that refers to what happens inside us in response to events that happen. And it's quite variable. Uh, you know, there are people who experience hugely challenging um, threats and accidents and illnesses and losses and so on. Um, 
who respond to it in such a way that it's not nearly as stressful for them physiologically as it is for another person who might meet the daily hassles or things that we would think of as minor stresses with huge dramatic responses. And so it's not just uh, what happens to you, it's how you res respond. The stress response, often called the fight or flight response, you've heard that term before, prepares us for an acute short-term threat to our survival, the saber-toothed tiger that attacks us outside the cave, makes us feel highly charged and more likely to survive that attack. Um, Hans Selye, who I know Dr. Folkman talked about, called it the general adaptation syndrome. And it's a state where one part of your autonomic nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system, which has nothing to do with being sympathetic, um, is highly charged and prepares you to meet an acute kind of challenge. So here's a guy that's not having a great day. Um, and he's reacting to stress in a particular way with, with, a lot of, with a rage reaction. And without going through all of the physiology, you can just see that from his brain, in the middle of his brain, the hypothalamus, which, which sort of is the main conductor of the fight-or-flight autonomic nervous system responses, sending lots of messages to his vital organs and his muscles and his heart and his blood pressure control and his digestion, his bladder and colon and so on and so forth. And uh, so it's all connected. It's a system-wide response that makes us prepare to survive something that's immediately threatening. So why do we want to learn to manage stress better? I think that's kind of a no-brainer. From a, Certainly from a medical point of view, um, Outfits like the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health give us figures like this, which are really pretty startling, that 75 to 90 percent of all visits to primary care doctors in the United States are um, intimately related to stressful events and the kinds of reactions that people have to them. So because we react physiologically, stress is not a mental event. It's a brain-body event. It's a whole event, your, your system gets changed. And that change, especially as I hope to show you over time, creates patterns that can make us more or more vulnerable to illness. On the other hand, better stress management can help make us hardier and more resistant to these kinds of things so that we're not necessarily running to the doctor for stress-related events, which is not generally a very good place to go because the doc, only 2% of the doctors have any real training in how to help you manage those stress-related events. They're, what they will do is they'll try to rule out that you have some horrendous disease, and then you can drop that one off your stress chart. And I can make a pretty good case for this statement that almost all illness is stress-related because, and I don't mean that it's caused by stress, but it's either caused by stress or it causes stress or it's aggravated by stress, you know. And so there's almost no serious or significant medical event that doesn't also have a significant stress-related event which can amplify it, or if you've got tools that can help you put it into perspective and manage it and reverse or reduce the physiologic response can help you prevent amplifying the seriousness or the difficulty of the situation. And then the third important thing that I'm not sure I saw addressed too much in the, other, um, in the other lectures was that what I call toxic coping 
adds fuel to this whole fire. Toxic coping are all the ways that we try to manage the stress and live through the stress and get through the night when things are really stressful. And they tend to be things like eating too much or eating too much of the wrong thing or drinking too much alcohol or smoking more cigarettes or uh, causing trouble for ourselves and getting involved with affairs and you know doing stupid things and losing our jobs and stuff like that. I mean, it's just stuff, how do I get through the next hour? How do I get through the next day? So what can make me feel better temporarily when we're, especially if we're living in very high stress situations over a long period of time, it's natural for us to seek comfort and to seek respite from that stress. But there are a lot of early learned ways of reducing that stress that don't serve us well in terms of our health. Again, eating among them, other habits like drinking and smoking and so on and so forth. Getting mad at your husband or wife, things like that, that do discharge you and give you a little relief, but cause more problems in your body, in your family, in your relationships, in your work. That's what I mean by toxic coping. And then it just circles in and starts to form a vicious cycle. I'm going to deal with this the best I can. Somehow these things got completely messed up, and we'll see how this goes. So I am going to talk to you about imagery because uh, tonight and give you a chance to work with an imagery process because I can also make a pretty good argument that it's the, the human mental function that is most intimately involved with both stress and relief of stress is the imagination. It's not generally... Um, the intellect that creates stress or that resolves stress. It's generally the imagination. And the simplest example is the most common source of ongoing stress is your imagination. It's worrying. Okay, So we could all be right now taking a nice walk out on a nice beach or up on a mountain or on a beautiful sunny day here in the beautiful Bay Area and it could be the nicest day in the world and if we just looked at what was going on around us, there's nothing dangerous, nothing happening. It could be very pleasant. You could be with friends. You could be with somebody you loved. And you could be so depressed that you just don't even want to look up. And in your head, you're worrying about what will happen if this happens and what will happen if that happens. And I'm sorry that I did that. And you could be living in regret. You could be living in worry. And so just because we have the capacity to remember and imagine we can create a hugely stressful perspective for living in that sunny day. And that's a function of the imagination. It's a function of, it's a bad habit with many people. I mean, we all worry sometimes. And worry is useful for solving problems up to a certain point. But then sometimes we develop a worry habit where we're just, if when we're done worrying about one thing, we go on to worrying about the next thing. And we're always living in the future and the future in the future that is filled with things that we're worried about. And the problem with that is that the brain, where that worrying is happening, is sending alarm messages to that part of your that deeper part of the brain that really is only listening and conveying two messages. That center part of the brain that I showed you in this guy, it only listens for and sends out two messages. One is everything's okay. And the other one is watch out, danger. And when it sends out the danger signal, that's the stress response. 
And when it sends out the okay, everything's okay signal, that's what some people call the relaxation response. And so, and you can create an okay signal even in the midst of all that worry by learning how to utilize your imagination on purpose more skillfully rather than letting your imagination kind of constantly run away with you. Not learning how to use your imagination skillfully is like having a very highly spirited horse or wild animal that just has a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of potential to help you, but without training and without learning how to communicate with it and use it skillfully, could be dangerous and just run you ragged and run you wild. This is the most common thing that humans do with their imaginations. We worry ourselves sick, drive ourselves crazy. You know, we learn most usually from our moms. You know, and <laughs> but they learn from their moms. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's it's adaptive up to a certain point. It's useful to think about what's going on and to plan ahead. That's what makes humans the most powerful animal on Earth. That's the difference between a human being and every other organism we know, is the ability to think into the future and to plan and to create and to manipulate the environment. Now, the big question is whether we will become wise enough to use this ability before we destroy the environment. That's what's going on now. And I have hope that we will because when you think about it, outside of God and nature, everything that exists on earth that wasn't created by God and or nature, whatever your favorite term is, was created by the imagine, human imagination. It started in somebody's imagination. All these buildings, the computers, the bridges, the rockets to space, the diving bells to the bottom of the ocean, started in somebody, somebody imagined it, and then there was a lot of work getting from that imagination to the actual thing. But it first entered this world in somebody's imagination. So it's a hugely powerful tool in learning to use it. So I'm not blaming mom, because it was mom's job to protect me. And so it was a good thing. In my, and thank God for my wife who looks out for the things that my daughter should be looking out for. And again, it's really good and adaptive in survival it's adapted for survival up to a point, but we all know people who go way beyond that point. And then that's all they do. And then your life, oh, it's just all worry and all fear and all threat and all physiologic arousal all the time without interruption. And that sets off the physiologic soup that I think interacts with our health. Because the imagery, which is basically thinking with sensory qualities, so it's thoughts that we're actually we're seeing, hearing, smelling, you know. So few people sit there and worry with their eyes closed and their fingers, you know, like, I'm going to really worry now. But if you do worry like that, what you'll find is you'll really supercharge your worrying. You'll get, you could actually scare the crap out of yourself, <laughs> you know, by taking, well, gee, I wonder how we're going to do that. And then really sitting there and thinking about it in full color, sound, technicolor, sensory modalities. I don't recommend it, you know. And in the same way, if you take that time, for instance, just to say, okay, I'm just going to take 10 minutes. I'm going to go to somewhere that I love to be. I'm going to daydream myself somewhere that's beautiful and peaceful and safe and where I feel relaxed and comfortable and God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. And I'm going to imagine what I see and what I hear and what I feel feel there and what the temperature is like and 
what's, what it feels like in my body, to appreciate the beauty that's there, your body will go into a very lovely relaxation response. So that's one of the re that's imagery, which is the coding language of the imagination, sensory thinking. Okay, and we'll we're going to do a different exercise. That's sort of the simplest, most direct way to experience the effects of imagery, and um, and you could go later on. I'll give you a website address. It's thehealingmind.org. It's my website. There's a free, I call it a stress buster, that you can download at no charge. It's a 12-minute little journey to your place that's beautiful, safe, and peaceful, and it'll take you through your senses, sensory modalities. And you can just check it out for yourself how quickly and easily that can take you from a place where of relative stress to relative relaxation, and that's just a gift to you. Um, and the, the thing about the sensory-based thinking is that it has not only emotional but f physiological effects. So as you take yourself through your senses, what we know now, we've been doing this for years and people doing hypnosis have been doing this for many years. Um, we know now that we can look at the brain with these amazing machines called functional MRIs where you saw some pictures of it about what fear looked like and what parts of the brain anger activates. Well, when you look at the brain and you ask people to imagine something visual, we find that the visual part of the brain that processes vision lights up. And when they imagine sounds and music, the part of the brain that processes sound gets active. And when they imagine odors and smelling thing, the part of the brain that smells lights up. So the, you can imagine now that as you go through all of your senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling, you're activating more and more of the cerebral cortex, the thinking cap of the brain, and that's now sending messages down to that hypothalamus, the head of the autonomic nervous system, and it's saying it looks like a beautiful, safe, peaceful place, it sounds like it, it smells like it, it feels like it, and that autonomic nervous system sends out the all-clear signal. And then your body automatically relaxes, and when it physiologically relaxes, there's a lot of what I call clean-up, pain-up, fix-up, repair processes and restorative processes, replacing chemicals, the body goes into kind of a facilitated repair and healing state. Because when it's in the stress state, it's busy looking highly vigilant, how do I deal with an outside threat to my health? When it's in the relaxation state, that's a place to restore and renew and replenish and fix things up. And we, a lot of times we don't get those punctuation pauses in our day unless we decide to do it. If we were more primitive living people, we, um, what we would find is that a lot of the days, if you look at primitive, the few primitive tribes that still exist, and you look at our closest relatives like chimpanzees and apes, they have intermittent stress the way that nature looks like they designed it. They have leopards come around, they have humans come around, they have tribes of other apes and chimps that come around try to get their, their food and steal their women and their babies and stuff like that. But it happens relatively infrequently and when it does they beat their chests and scream and climb trees and go to war and you know they have a, a big deal for a while. But then it's, it's usually over pretty quickly, half an hour an hour, and whatever happened, whether the, even if the worst happened, that the leopard took one of them away, everybody kind of settles back to what they were doing before, which is largely 
next to nothing. It's like they're eating, they're picking fleas off each other, they're playing with their kids, they're, uh, they're making love, they're playing, they're wrestling, they're sleeping. That's what they do probably 80% of the time. Okay? The men do it more than the women, you know. So in the primitive tribes, the women are doing more work. But even then, in primitive societies, you know, there's huge stresses, famines, droughts, animals, wars, and stuff like that. But they're pretty intermittent. What they're not getting is they're not getting every bad thing that happened on the face of the earth in the last hour, on the television, on the internet, in your ear, on the radio, in the newspapers, all day long and sometimes all night long. They're not getting that. Most of the time, they're eating, they're picking fleas, they're making love, they're taking naps. Okay? So I don't know about your life, but that's not most people's lives these days, right? So to make time, and in those downtimes that they have, They've got plenty of time for their physiology to go into these restore and reparative things. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to visualize it. They don't have to make it happen. It's natural. Nature has repair processes, and it's trying to do it even when you're highly stressed. It's just that it's much more efficient and effective when you're not highly stressed. So there's a lot of different ways that imagery can help. They tend to bunch into... The relaxation is one thing to just punctuate your day with a relaxation technique once, twice a day. Just say, I'm getting off the world just because I'm deciding to. I don't need any other excuse. I'm just, or if you have a health issue, this is your excuse. Okay? It's just, I just need to turn it off for a little while. Just like you have to charge your cell phone, you have to charge your iPod, you have to charge your computer, you have to charge your brain. You have to charge your body. And the equivalent of plugging it into the charger is distracting yourself with something pleasant, safe, beautiful, or using something like a meditation where you just focus on a neutral point which turns off the constant worry. And then your body will do the rest. The other thing that, one of the other great functions of imagery is imagination is a royal road to insight. There's a wonderful very complex world inside each one of us. It's every bit as complicated and rich and interesting as the outer world. And um, it's where dreams come from and intuitions and creativity and problem solving. And there are ways to use imagery to help us problem solve. You know, one of the ways we use, we have people, invite people to go to that peaceful, beautiful place where you're nice and quiet and relaxed. And then if you have a problem that you really haven't been able to solve with your usual ways of problem solving, an interesting thing to do is we call them inner wisdom meditations. So you go to a quiet place and you imagine that there you, you have a friend. could be human, could be an animal, could be a spirit. It has two characteristics. It's very wise and it's very loving. Okay? And, so you, and that might be a real person you knew or a mythical person or a religious figure or... It may, be, it may come in any form, but you just imagine that you're there with a loving, wise being of some kind that knows you well and that cares about you, and you have a conversation with it. You tell it what's been going on, and then you ask it for some guidance or advice, and you listen. And it'll tap you into areas of your brain that you may not have been using because we tend to kind of go over the same tracks over and over. It'll tend to open up your perspective.
And then the third thing is what I call emotional strengthening or emotional modulation. And that has to do with the technique I'm going to share with you today. Because this is the usual thing that we use imagination for. The Ziggy here, he, uh, he says, the figments of my imagination are out to get me. This is the more common use of imagination. And we can, so the bar is set pretty low. And we can actually learn to use our imagination. Some of you are looking at your slides, and I think, and these slides, this may work out well for you, because these slides may actually be the slides that were printed out for you. And I changed this whole lecture around. So you imagine my surprise when I see this one, which I wasn't expecting to see. I didn't put the new one on. So stress and relaxation and health. I have a good friend and partner. We used to lecture a lot around the country, David Bresler. He's a professor of psychology at UCLA. And we would go around, we would do this little dog and pony show where one of us would make, we would switch off, and one of us would make the case that stress has, and relaxation have everything to do with health. It's like the most important thing to do with health. And, you know, worry is the most common source. What they call type 2 stress is exhausting. Did anyone talk to you about type 1 and type 2 stress? Very simply, type 1 stress is the kind that we think the stress response was designed for, the saber-toothed tiger, the mugger, the acute threat to your life where you get pumped up, your blood all goes to your muscles, your heart beats fast, your blood pressure goes up, your blood clots faster, you're ready to, you know, to fight the tiger to the death or escape, run the fastest two miles you ever ran. Um, and then, again, in a half an hour, it's all over. The body goes into a compensatory relaxation response. And if you've survived that stress, you sit around the campfire for the next 20 years telling about how you ran away from the tiger or how you killed the tiger. You know? That's type 1 stress. Type 2 stress is the kind that comes from constant worrying and listening to the news and taking it to heart and you know, doing it uninterrupted. All the constant worries, the mortgage, the college education, the health issues, the family issues, the, the war, the this, the that, the global warming. It's what comes from that constant lower level arousal where your body is frequently and sometimes always in a state of arousal, but doesn't have anything it can actually do to solve any of those problems. You know, at least with the tiger, you can either fight it, kill it, or you can run away from it and escape it, or it'll kill you. Those are the three outcomes, okay? And in all three of those outcomes, there's no more stress. You know, it's like you've burned, and you've burned up the chemicals, running, fighting, or dying, I guess. So. Your body has burned up all those huge, those, uh, that adrenaline and all the stress chemicals. But in type 2 stress, this daily nagging worry, fear, unsettled anxiety that we often carry around, the body doesn't get to dip into those restorative relaxation kinds of periods. That's, where the, and that's why it's important. And it's exhausting. Over time, one or two of the doctors showed you in the earlier lectures that acute short-term stress actually boosts your immune system a little bit. You know, it's part of getting ready to survive this attack. But when it's chronic and prolonged and you're living in it, your energy just goes down, your immunity goes down. You're, you know, when you're fighting a saber-toothed tiger, it's a good thing that your blood would clot faster. If you got wounded, maybe you wouldn't bleed to death. When you're living over... 
you know, 30 years of working in a corporation or wherever you're working or you're an independent worker and worried about your income all the time, 30 years of having your blood clot too quickly, your doctor won't like that, you won't like that, your cardiologist doesn't like it. We don't want our blood to be sludgy and clotty on an ongoing basis. That sets us up for things like high blood pressure, cardiac disease, stroke, and so on and so forth. So it's not how we ideally want to live. There have been studies that show that 80% of serious illnesses are preceded by very high stress levels in the year to year and a half before that. That used to be a really meaningful statement to me. I think now it's almost silly because I don't know anybody who doesn't live with high stress levels on a con constant basis anymore. Maybe you do. Is there anybody here who doesn't? Good. Sign him up for next year for the lecture. Because, yeah, there's, but it's an exception. You know, one guy out of a hundred at a stress lecture. So these are people, you, <laughs> you know, you are people who want, who are interested in doing something about it and probably already have some skills. So it's a hugely stressful time and with this, the information flow and so on and so forth, without some kinds of practices and tools to work with, a lot of people live in those, in those levels all the time. So, I'm, so everyone's going to have that, I think. It's going to be rare to not have somebody like that. And we would like to tell our medical audiences, you know, that, that Vernon Riley was a physiologist back in the 50s and 60s at University of Washington. Did some startling research. The, the one that sticks out in my mind was they raised little, little mice that were genetically bred to develop breast cancers so that they can use them for research. So the, and the average situation, 80% of these mice will develop a breast cancer and then they can use them for research. Riley did research on them where he took half the mice and stressed them by giving them intermittent electrical shocks in their cages where they didn't know it was happening. You know, these are, we won't get into that discussion, but um, at the time it wasn't an issue. So over 90% of those mice developed breast cancer, so somewhat more of them than the average mice developed breast cancer. The really startling thing was that he took half the mice and had the lab attendants befriend the mice and really love them up really good. And they would take them out of their cages and they would stroke them and they would coochie-coo them and they'd give them and they'd let them visit with the other mice and they'd let them out of their cages. And I mean, they just really treated these mice. These mice were in mouse heaven. And fewer than 40% of those animals developed breast cancers, even though they were genetically bred to develop breast cancer. Now, isn't that a startling fact? Now, they're mice and we're not, but that, there's a lesson to be drawn from that, I think. So, and it may be mediated through the immune system, and there may be other, other, because um, what's a, it's the type of reaction to stress. One is it's just one single event that you deal with. The other is that it's ongoing because your mind is full of it. That's what type two is. It's the constant warrior, yeah. So then the other one of us would make the case that stress has nothing to do with Stress and relaxation has nothing to do with health. And what that's about is most of what you've been hearing, that it's stress tolerance. It's how you respond that really is the difference. It's not necessarily, I mean, there are events that happen to people that would crush just about anybody. And even with those events, there are people who respond to those events in ways that are inspiring and mind-boggling and they end up making something out of them and they end up not 
being crushed and not collapsing and not succumbing to it. I don't even know how they do it. You know, you know. I, I think of the a woman, a black woman in the South, who lost something like three or four children in a church fire that was started by bigots. You know, and then dedicated the, the rest of her life to um, to anti-bigotry education and to building new churches that where churches had been burned down and to healing wounds in terms of race relations. I mean, that's just blows my mind. I don't, I, I'd like to think that I could do something like that, but I doubt it. But some people can. So it's the way you respond that makes a difference in terms of... I don't know if anyone talked to you about Suzanne Kobasa. She's a researcher from University of Chicago. And um, she studied, you know, years ago, maybe 15 years ago, AT&T or used to be the biggest company in the world. And they disbanded. It was about 15 to 20 years ago. And it was a huge stress that affected hundreds of thousands of people. So smart research psychologists like Dr. Kobasa, you know, decided, let's see what happens when these hundreds of thousands of corporate people are subjected to a huge stress, which is the threat to all of their jobs. And what she found was that there were about 7 to 10% of people who just died within the next year. And generally with things like heart disease and stroke and so on, and things that probably have something to do with stress. She also found on the other end of the scale about the same percentage of people who thrived after this corporation got dysregulated. And she started to study them with the idea of saying, what, what is it about those people that allowed them to thrive in a time? These are high-level executives. And she came up with, with her hypothesis of the three C's. What she found with these people is that when faced with a big stress like this, they responded to it as a challenge. They saw it as a challenge. They felt like it was important and they were committed to trying to do something about it. And they also felt like they could make a difference, that they had some modicum of control. And the people who had that as a personality type actually rise to the top in, in situations where there's high levels of stress. They feel they rise to the challenge, they're committed to doing something about it, and they feel that they could do something about it. Those will mitigate stress reactions and turn stress into something that can actually be used for energy rather than something that crushes people. Now, we don't all have those things. The question is, can we develop those things? Can we cultivate those responses? And so the technique that I want to share with you here is one way to help expand your capacity to deal with a, with a stress that you may not have been. What we want to do is cultivate hardiness or health. We want to change situations that are changeable. We want to change our response to the situation if the situation isn't changeable. I know Dr. Kobasa talked to you, I think it was her, about the the serenity prayer is one of the great pieces of wisdom, you know, to know the difference between what you can change and what you can't change, and the, and the wisdom to know the difference, accept the things you can't change, change the things you can, have the wisdom to know the difference. It has a lot to do with this. Or change your perspective in relation to it, which actually has the effect of having a bit of, a, of both changing the situation in response, and that's what I want to give you a chance to experiment with. So when I think about, you know, just sort of the basic laws of cultivating hardiness or cultivating health, given whatever your genetic capabilities are, they're pretty simple. You know, get, if you make time to sleep and rest enough, 
you know, have some kind of physical activity in your day, even if it's just walking. Um, eat good food on a regular basis and not too much of it. Make sure that you get good quality water. Um, try to balance your expectations and capacities. Don't ask too much of yourself or too little of yourself. At this point, you know, sometimes what I say to my patients is, if, especially if they have, how many of you have pets? How many of you have dogs especially? Not that many. Dogs are great. I don't have a dog, but people who have dogs understand this right away. It's like, if you take care of yourself the way you take care of a dog, you'll be doing 98% of what you can do to cultivate good health. Okay? So you, you, feed the, you don't feed the dog junk food. You feed the dog good food. You make sure it has access to fresh water. When it has to go to the bathroom, you let it take its time. You know, and when it's tired, you let it sleep, and then you take it for a walk twice a day. And then you let it play with the other dogs, and hopefully you pet it and tell it you love it and play with it. And if you did those same things, if that was your basic health plan, you would be doing most of what's possible to do to make a difference in your own health. So those things. Then we have other things, like uh, we don't know if dogs have a sense of humor, but people certainly do, and that's... And that has a lot to do with our perspective. And being connected with other people, being connected with something you believe in, you know, having a philosophy, thinking about what your faith is, thinking about how do we deal with life, which is a really strange situation, you know. The Buddhists say that life is like getting into a rowboat and heading out to sea, knowing for sure that it's going to sink. And how do we live with that kind of knowledge? So most of us try to avoid that knowledge most of our lives. And that doesn't always work really well because somewhere in us we know it. So there's, there's got to be a greater depth, especially when we get to some of the hard parts of life like health issues with ourselves and others that we love. So I talked about changing the situation. And if you're stuck in one place, the inner advisor, inner wisdom, inner guide, meditation, how many of you have ever done something like that? It's kind of a a variation on talking to yourself, but in a, in a good way, you know. It's kind of like, you know, you've got a good friend who's got a problem, and you listen to their problem, and you usually will give your friend good advice, won't you? They usually won't take it. But you usually give good, wise, loving advice to your friends, and it's easier to do because you're not bound up in the emotional anxiety and angst that they are when they've got a really serious problem. And this is kind of a way of getting out of your own way and accessing your own wisdom and strength. And that's a, a very, it's not what we're going to do today, but that's a very useful thing. Whatever you call it, your intuition, your wisest self, your inner self, your inner guide, uh, the bottom, you know, it's what would Jesus do, what would the Dalai Lama do, what would whoever you like do, okay? What would somebody genuinely wise and loving do in this situation. And what it does is it helps you shift, especially if you do it in imagery and you take the time to really imagine that, that such a being is there. It shifts you out of the place you're in, which is usually very anxious, worried, fearful, and somewhat regressed, into what would this look like if I was in a place where there was wisdom and compassion? which sometimes will reveal paths that weren't there before. Okay, so that's... Or we can change our response. And I talked, and other people talked about the relaxation response. And 
Imagery, again, for my two cents, is the simplest way that I know to evoke a relaxation response. It's daydreaming on purpose, and you just decide to daydream yourself to a place that's beautiful and peaceful and loving. And again, you can, you can check that out from the website. Or we can change the perspective. So let me tell you a quick story about how this can work, and then we'll do the, then we'll do the imagery. And I'll... So a woman called me, Emily, I'll call her. She was a nurse. She had been a patient of mine some years prior. She'd had breast cancer. Um, she went through the process with, um, as most people do, with a great mixture of emotions and stresses. That's a very stressful situation. She was one of those people who went through her cancer eventually looking at it as a wake-up call. Not everybody does, and I'm not saying that it is, but that was her response to it, that, that lots of things in her, in her life were out of balance, and this was a wake-up call, and she was going to respond to it in that way, not only by doing the surgery and the radiation, and she didn't do chemotherapy, but not only doing the conventional medical things, but by looking at her whole life, her diet, her nutrition, her relationships, her work, everything. And she got immersed in it and did very well through her treatment and came through her treatment a genuinely changed person as people who do that, this will. They, they don't just come out as survivors of treatment. They come out as changed people, people who have learned something. And she had been doing great for a while. This was about four years afterwards. And I get a call from her, and uh, I get on the phone with her, and she's sobbing uncontrollably and can barely even talk. And finally, you know, I got the, I figured out between her sobs, she said she's at her oncologist's office. She's getting her four-year checkup, and she's just been told she has a recurrence. And she's completely devastated. She's back even worse than she was when she first got diagnosed, maybe because she had sort of done everything right, you know, and was kind of sailing along and in her nice new life, and here she gets a blow that she's got a recurrence. That's not, that's a difficult thing to deal with. So she's sobbing, and I said, why don't you come over at the end of the day? And she came over, and she's still sobbing. She's bent over, sobbing so hard that, that she can barely speak. And the only thing she can say that I can hear is, I, can't, I just don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it again. I just can't do this again. I can't go through it again. By the time she said that, about 10 times, I finally got it. And, um, and I said, Emily, and this is the key question in this technique of evocative imagery, which is, what do you feel you're missing that would allow you to do this? What do you need more of in order to do this? And she took a minute or so, and she said, I just don't know if I have the strength or the courage to do this again. So I said, would you be willing to do some imagery? Because she had done a lot of it when she was first diagnosed, and she was, of course, willing to do it. And I introduced her to this technique, and it was, it's simply this. I, I said, she did a little breathing. I said, let yourself go back in time, in your memory, to some time in your life when you felt you had what you need now. Go back to some time when you felt that you had the courage and strength then after a while, she added clarity. She said courage, strength, and clarity was what she needed. So go back in your life to some time when you felt that you had the strength and courage and clarity that you're looking for now. And just let your mind go back and see what comes to mind. And what came to mind for her was a time about 20, 25 years beforehand when her mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And Emily was a young nurse just out of school. 
And she said, I'm, I'm in my mother's living room. My mother is sobbing and bereft and overwhelmed like I feel now. And what you do is you go back and you, I asked her to talk about everything in, current, in present tense. I said, talk about it as if you're there again. Where are you? I'm in my mother's living room. What do you see? I see the sofa. I see the doilies. I see the screens on the windows. I see the afternoon sun coming in the window. What do you hear? I hear my mother sobbing crying, hysterical. I hear my sister in the other room on the phone to my aunt. She's crying and screaming and hysterical. I say, what do you feel in yourself? She says, well, I'm holding the center. There's nobody else. I'm strangely calm and clear. And I'm the one who's holding the center so that we can do what needs to be done. Okay? So then I said, now what is that? So... What does that feel like in your body? Where do you feel that in your body? And she kind of says, I, I feel it kind of mostly here in my heart. And I said, now notice what it feels like in your heart and notice what it feels like in your body if you really let yourself feel that clarity and calm, the, the holding the center experience that you have now. And she's got her eyes closed. She kind of sits up, her posture changes. I say, and notice what does it feel like in your face to feel that quality of clarity and calmness, courage. And her face gets very composed. And, and then we go through a, a process that you can do in your imagination. We say, now if you like, let yourself just let that feeling get larger and stronger and expand and flow through your body. And I wonder if you like, imagine that it's flowing down your arms, down to the tips of your fingers and your palms. And we did the same with her legs down to the bottom of her feet. And we go through some imagery suggestions like, you know, imagine that that feeling of calmness and clarity and courage is reaching every cell of your body, from the deepest cells of your bone marrow, out through all of your muscles and all of your contective tissue, and you're out to the outermost cells of your skin. And every part of you is full of clarity and courage and calmness. By now she's very still and calm and quiet. And then we say, now, if you like, imagine you have a control like you have on a radio, and you can turn this up as large as you. Imagine that you're overflowing with these clarity and courage and calmness. We repeat the names of the qualities a lot while you're doing this. And you're filling the space around you for two feet in every direction. And then if you like, turn it up so you're filling a bigger space and a bigger... You get the idea. You can fill the whole room with it or the whole world with it. And then adjust it to what feels comfortable for you. And then she comes back, and it takes about 10, 15 minutes to do that. She comes back, she's composed, she's clear. She says, you know, I can do this. I do have what I, what I need. I just couldn't get to it. And that's very often true, that when we're really stressed and really scared and really emotionally upset, we sometimes can't access our strengths. And the imagery will allow us to shift and access it. So she still had a recurrence. She still had things to deal with. But now she's got a tool where she can connect with, these, with this clarity and courage and calmness, which will help her go through them. And she would lose it from time to time. But she would go back to this method and be able to re-access that feeling. And when I saw her, I'd saw, I saw her once a week for the next few weeks, but by, sometime in the third week she said to me, she said, you know, this evocative imagery, is, it's really like emotional bodybuilding, isn't it? 
I said, I never thought of it that way, but it's really true. Because she says, the more I do that, the more I feel the clarity and the calmness and the courage. And I, I actually feel it in myself. It's not, and what's neat about the imagery is that it gives you the experience. It's not just patting someone on the back and saying, oh, no, you're, you can do this, which is helpful. But when people actually experience it, as I hope you'll have a chance to do it, it's a whole different thing. Then you actually know that you have that thing inside you. Okay? So what I want to invite you to do, if you want to experiment with this for yourself, how many of you have done guided imagery in some form or another before? Okay. How many of you have done relaxation or meditation? Okay. You've all done guided imagery before. Has anyone ever seen a movie in here? Television show? Advertisements? It's all guided imagery. Okay, 99.6% of your daily life is guided imagery, believe me. Once you start to, okay, but we're going to do therapeutic guided imagery, okay? Um, and what I want to invite you to do is think about a situation that's stressful for you, if you have one. And if not, maybe the person next to you has more than one and they would loan it to you. But if you have a stressful situation going on or something happened recently that was very stressful that um, you had difficulty dealing with, especially a stressful situation that you may not be able to do anything about and that you're having trouble accepting or coming to terms within yourself, just think about that situation. And think about what you would, a quality or a couple of qualities that you would like to have more of as you deal with that situation. So this could be patience, it could be humor, it could be kindness or compassion, it could be assertiveness, it could be courage, it could be faith, it could be something else. But think of a quality or two that you feel like if I had more whatever, I could deal with this more easily. And give the quality a name, and it can be up to, I'd say, one to three qualities that you would just like to feel more of. If you don't have an ongoing stressful situation, great, I'm glad to hear that. And just think of a quality that you would like to experience more vividly for a few minutes now. So it could be happiness, it could be joy, it could be whatever. And by the way, you can change that as you go inside. If, if something comes to mind, you can change the quality. And now, if you're comfortable with it, go ahead and close your eyes. And you can, it's just easier to do imagery with your eyes closed. But you can open them at any time and look around. And at any time, if you're uncomfortable with anything, just open your eyes and look around the room and bring yourself out of your inner world. But if you're comfortable going to your inner world, close your eyes, take a nice deep breath. And just kind of let your out-breath be a letting go kind of a breath. And just do that a couple more times, one at a time. You breathe in, imagine that you're breathing in some fresh energy and the oxygen flowing through your body. And as you let the breath out, invite any tension or distraction or discomfort to flow out with the breath. And just invite your body to soften and open. And feel free to shift and be more comfortable at any time. And as you breathe and let yourself relax, let your mind get relatively quiet.
And just think about those, that quality or qualities you'd like to experience more of. And let yourself go back in your mind. Just ask your unconscious mind to take you back to some time in your life when you experienced yourself having those qualities in you. Or if you never experienced those qualities when you witnessed somebody expressing those qualities. But just let yourself think of a time in your life when you had those qualities, you experienced having, experienced that quality or qualities in you. And then imagine that you're there again now, as best you can. And look around as if you're really there and notice a few things that you see or imagine seeing. And notice the colors and the shapes and the objects and the people or whatever's there. Notice what you see as you look around in your inner world. As you're beginning to feel this quality or quality in yourself. And notice what you hear in that place. And notice that you can hear my voice and things from the room at the same time, but in your inner world, notice what you're hearing as you're in that place experiencing yourself having that quality or qualities. And notice what the air or atmosphere is like, if there's an odor or an aroma or a fragrance, or a particular quality of the air in that place where you are. And notice what time of day it seems to be, day or night. And then start to notice in your body, kind of gently scan your body with your awareness and notice where you feel this quality or qualities most strongly in your body. Kind of scan up and down like a radar beam, sonar beam. And notice if you feel this quality or qualities more strongly in one area of your body or another. If it seems to center somewhere. Your chest or your abdomen or your pelvis, or your legs or your head, your hands or arms, or maybe it's all over. And as you start to notice what it feels like to feel this quality or these qualities in yourself, notice what it feels like in your body. Let the feelings get a little bit stronger so you can really feel the that particular quality or qualities and let it grow a little stronger if you're comfortable with it and notice what it feels like in your body and notice what your posture wants to be like as you're feeling this quality or qualities and notice what your face feels like and what the expression on your face wants to be is you feel this quality or qualities in your face.
And if you're comfortable with it, let the strength of the qualities grow larger and stronger. You can imagine you have some kind of a volume control like you do on a radio or television. You can turn it up or down. And imagine that you just turn it up so that it begins to fill the whole space of your body. And as if that quality or qualities could be radiated and filled all the way down your legs to the bottoms of your feet, all the way down your arms to the palms of your hands, throughout your hips and back and pelvis, abdomen, chest, head and neck. And imagine that that quality, it's as if it could be radiated out so that it's touching every cell in your body. From the deepest cells in your bone marrow to your bones, your ligaments, connective tissues, organs, a layer under your skin, all the way out to the very outermost skin cells, as if every cell of your body was touched and filled with this particular quality or qualities. And if that's a pleasant experience, if that's a good experience for you, go ahead and turn it up even higher, as if that those qualities could overflow your body and fill the space around your body for a foot in every direction. And if you want to, you could just be soaking it up like a sponge. And if you want to, you can turn it up so you're filling the space for three feet in every direction. Or ten feet in every direction. Just imagine that there's an abundant source of this quality or qualities, wherever it comes from. You could fill the room with it if you wanted to. You could fill the world with it if you wanted to. But then adjust it to whatever is most comfortable for you. And whatever is most comfortable for you is perfectly all right. It's like listening to music all by yourself. Whatever is most comfortable and pleasing to you however big or small, however strong or subtle you'd like this quality to be, just adjust it so that it's most comfortable for you right now and let that be all right. And now as you're experiencing yourself in touch with that quality or qualities, look at this stressful situation again that you thought about from that perspective. And just notice if it seems any different to you in any way, or if your relationship to it seems different in any way. It may or may not. Just notice. Notice what it would be like if you were 
dealing with that situation while being in touch with this quality or qualities in yourself. Notice if anything seems to be different or go differently. Notice if anybody, including yourself, seems to react or respond differently. And just imagine that you have as much of what you need. Just imagine you have as much of what you need. And just see if it looks or feels or seems the same or different in any way. If there's anything you would do differently about it. Or not. If you would feel any differently about it. Or not. Just take a few moments with that. And then when you're ready, just start to gently become aware of the room we're in together. And let go of the images. And start to notice what you hear or experience in the room, here and now. And as your attention comes back to the outside world, bring back with you anything that you've learned, anything that seems important or interesting to you. And take your time and when you come back, take a couple of minutes just to write down anything that you'd like to remember about this experience or any questions you have about this experience. And I'm going to give you just a few minutes to come all the way back and come back feeling more relaxed and refreshed and awake than you were before. Take a few minutes to write down anything you'd like to remember or that seemed important or interesting or any questions you have about this experience for later. And I'll give you a few minutes and then we'll begin again. We'll have a chance to discuss this if you want to discuss anything about it. I have a few more things to talk to you about. But how many people were able to access a feeling of a quality or qualities that you wanted to feel more about doing that? Good. So half to two thirds of you. It's good. If you didn't, you know, it's a skill. It doesn't nothing it doesn't it's like hitting a baseball or typing or something. It's something it's pretty natural, but you learn to do it. So if you didn't have a home run experience this time, don't berate yourself or give up on guided imagery. It's, you know, some of you may have fallen asleep. Some of you may not have been able to relax. Those things happen all the time. But, you know, a good number of you are able to access that. And how many of you, having accessed the quality or qualities you chose, for how many of you was the stressful situation, did it look different or feel different or seem different to you in some meaningful way? I'm curious about that. So probably about half of those people who access the quality. So 
That's interesting in itself, isn't it? I think one of the great things about this approach is is that, you know, because if you're stressed, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're feeling bad, people tell you to cheer up, you know, keep your chin up. I could have patted Emily on the back, say, no, you're strong, you can deal with it. You dealt with it before, you'll deal with it again. That would have been somewhat helpful, okay? Just like I could pat each one of you on the back and say, no, you can, you know, you can probably deal with that. But when you go inside and you feel the feeling, then you know that you can deal with it in another way. That goes way beyond me telling you that. That's one thing. The other thing is, is when you're not feeling well and you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and depressed, somebody tells you to feel, you know, just buck up and, you know, keep your chin up and think a happy thought, you know. I don't know about you, but there's something in me wants to go for their neck, you know. So, and the, the cool thing about evocative imagery is it doesn't start out by negating what you're feeling. It starts out by acknowledging what you're feeling. So you're not saying, geez, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling depressed. And instead of saying, don't feel depressed, go to a happy place and feel happy, which is something you can learn to do and is useful, it starts out by saying, I know that you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and anxious. What, would, what do you need more of in order to be able to deal with this better? So then it asks you about what are the resources that would help you? And you start right away to draw on thinking about, boy, I need more energy, I need more patience, I need more courage, I need more assertiveness, I need more stick-to-itiveness, whatever those qualities are. And then it, it, by accessing it and going to an inner world felt experience, it actually shifts your emotional state. When you shift your emotional state, you shift your physiologic state. So something actually happens, a felt shift happens inside you, which is different than just thinking, I know I should be thinking better thoughts, which often serves as another reason to kind of get down on yourself. I do this all the time. I know I should be thinking better thoughts, and I'm not, so I'm even a bigger schmuck than I thought I was. So you can just take that right down your negative thinking. Let me get to that in a minute. So some of the resources that can help you practice, I went through those too fast, are things like CDs. Um, CDs are inexpensive. You can listen to them anytime you want. There's a whole variety. I'm going to give you four different websites. You can get CDs from, four, from half a dozen different people that are all experts in the field that can help you practice and explore and learn how to work with everything from relaxation to the inner advisor, inner wisdom kinds of meditation, to evocative imagery, to healing imagery, so on and so forth, to dealing with specific illnesses and health kinds of issues. So CDs are cheap. You can practice with them anytime. You can download them if you're tech savvy. You know, you can download them onto your iPod or your MP3 player, and you can find things that are anything from five minutes long to 15, 20 minutes long and get kind of a tech-assisted meditation, you know. If your mind's very busy, if you're a medical student or nursing student or professional student or, you know, your mind's going 100 miles an hour, it's often much easier to listen to somebody else guide you through the process than it is to try to learn it from a book. You can learn it from a book. Um, uh, I wrote a book called Guided Imagery for Self-Healing. I recommend it. 
and you know it's full of why this works and the science and case histories and the scripts and so on and so forth but it's a lot easier to kind of get the theory and the background from that kind of thing and then listen to good guided imagery CDs and processes that'll just take you through it and with repetition you start to learn how to do it like anything else that you learn um, classes and groups there's more and more classes and groups around you can look at support centers like the Friend Cancer Support Center, Millbury Union, you know, go online. There's lots of ways to begin to learn these kinds of things, especially in our area. We're in an area that has a very rich supply of resources that way. And for things that are really knotty and thorny, I mean, sometimes this can, imagery can bring up serious issues that haven't been dealt with issues of, of abuse, issues that are just too big for self-care. I think of, you know, the, the CDs and the classes and the books and so on are kind of over-the-counter strength. And it's, they're very useful for a lot of things. But if you've had psychiatric illness, if there's serious depression, if there's, um, you know, if there's a history of post-traumatic stress from any source, that may be too much to do on your own and you want to get a professional to work with that also knows what they're doing. And I'm going to give you a website for a training academy that has trained and certified uh, quite a number of professionals in, who know how to use this in those kinds of prescription strength situations. So thehealingmind.org, that's my website. We've got books and CDs by me, by colleagues Ken Pelletier, Gene Ochterberg, um, that's one place for a variety of different health and stress-related issues. The Academy for Guided Imagery.com. The Academy is a professional training academy and has a roster of about 800 health professionals around the country and actually about 20 international that have been through a 150-hour certification program to learn to work with people with one-on-one -on -one interactive guided imagery. It's a very powerful approach to learning and growth and, and therapy. And again, that's prescription strength. Um, healthjourneys.com. Um, Bella Ruth Napperstek is a social worker from Cleveland who has a wide variety of really wonderful guided imagery and music CDs and tapes for all kinds of medical and, um, and psychology-related situations. And uh, Emmett Miller is an MD, up, lives up in Grass Valley, who virtually invented uh, sort of guided imagery on tape. It used to be audio cassettes and now CDs and downloads. And he's at drmiller.com. And all of these are very high quality. And you may like one voice better. You might like music. You might like not music and so on. So it's a whole world that you can kind of explore in pretty inexpensively and find and explore resources that allow you to use your imagination more skillfully to help yourself with stress. Um, so that's it for that. We'll have a little discussion. If anybody wants to contact me, this is a, an email address that will get to me. Um, I also brought brochures um, that are on a back table for the healing mind that give you some idea of what we've got. and. Um, Let's take a little time. It's about 8.20, so we've got about 20, 25 minutes if we need it. Um, do you want to stand up and stretch for a couple minutes and then sit back down? And then let's see if you have questions or comments, things you want to share.
concerns? Yes, sir. Have there been compar- have studies of comparing different religions in terms of the way they deal with stress? It's, it, you know, it's an interesting question. It's not my field of study, and I kind of, I kind of doubt it. But I've never really looked into it. And, you know, I would think that they would all say that they're the best way. Generally, that's what they do. Yeah, but I don't think there's been any particular strategy. And my guess is what would show in those ideas is that, is that if you have a religion that is meaningful to you and that is congruent with your beliefs and your experience and your life and that brings you comfort in times which are difficult, then that, that's the religion that's going to do it for you. And, if it, and whatever it is doesn't matter. And whether you're a, you know, a, a neo-pagan or a Catholic or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, I mean, I think in some sense that's what religion is about. What, what, is, a way, what is a way of living in this life that can allow me to live with dignity and allow me to live with grace and allow me to live with courage and calm in the face of of some things that I really wish would not happen. <laughs> I'm going to summarize what you said, that, that you know, a common, a common cause of stress is having too many things on your plate, trying to do too, more than you can actually do. That's a, and that's where planning and organization comes in. And I went through that kind of quickly, but that's where trying to be as realistic as you can about what you really need to do, prioritizing things, what you can do, what you can't do, and letting go of some things is a really important part of stress management. Because that's because you can end up, it's very simple to end up. I've had this, I can't tell you how many times I've had this feeling. I come back from a day practicing in my office. I may have seen 15 or 18 people. If I was fortunate, I may have been able to help some or a lot of them, dealt with a lot of serious issues, kind of come home. You know, there's the my wife, my children, my friends, my parents, my this, my that. And so you can end up, there's just not enough time, there's not enough capacity in one way of looking at it. In another way of looking at it, you could say, well, we deal with things as they come along. But it's very in, easy to reach the end of a day like that when you may have done a huge amount of good for a whole lot of people and been a pretty good doctor and a pretty good wife and a pretty good husband and a pretty good dad and a pretty good son and a, you know and end up at the end of the day just feeling like you haven't done any of those things well you know i haven't been a good enough mother i haven't been a good enough doctor i haven't been a good enough husband i haven't been a good enough father i'm not a good enough son i'm not enough good and you know you just want to put a gun in your head and it just is not a good way to live so something's out of balance there i mean in how do you balance that out how do you come to accept that what's good enough and how can you let it be the kind of good enough day? And I used to, I learned a big lesson about that when I was a freshman in medical school. I had a summer job in Detroit. I went to University of Michigan and I had a summer job where at the coal plant, the coke plant, where they burn coal and turn it into coke to melt iron into steel. So this is at a place in Detroit called Zug Island. It's an island in the middle of this river in the darkest, most dreary part of Detroit, Michigan, which is pretty dark and dreary. And I work an eight-hour day shoveling coal, coke, which is 140 degrees in the middle of summer. It's 95 degrees out with 100% humidity. 
And the job is that this stuff is trundling up a, a, uh, a conveyor belt in a little house, and it's falling off the conveyor belt. And my job is to shovel it and put it back on the conveyor belt. And so after an eight-hour day, and I'm covered with black soot, absolutely covered, exhausted, trying to get up enough energy to go home, and the foreman comes along. He says, who's Rossman? I said, I'm Rossman. He says, you're on the night shift. I said, okay, I'll be here tomorrow night. He says, no, you're here tonight. So now the second job is I'm up in this house where 12 different conveyor belts come from these things, all going in different directions, all loaded with this 140-degree hot coal falling off. You wear special boots because it's about two feet thick on the floor, and your job is to shovel it back onto the thing. So I'm a good young medical student, shoveling, 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 constantly shoveling, constantly falling out. The regular guy comes in, who's about a 50-year-old guy, wonderful guy, black guy. He's been doing this job for 25 years. He sets out his mat over in the corner, gets out his newspaper, gets out his coffee thing, gets out his lunch, lays down, takes a nap. 20 minutes later, he's up, gets up, he shovels about three things back on the belt, goes over, unscrews his mug, pours himself a cup of coffee, breaks out the sports section, reads the paper, 20 minutes later, he's out there, he shovels it three, four times. This goes on all, half the night. I'm shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. And he says to me in the nicest voice, he says, you know, son, he says, you do understand you're never going to get this job done. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of wisdom in that. And, you know, he figured out a way to live with that. And that was wise. That was a bit of wisdom that I've been grateful for. And so, so sometimes I think about that room and I think about... I'm never going to get it all done, and I just have to do the best I can. And, and maybe there's some of that stuff I don't really have to do anymore, and I can unload it. What else? Yeah. There's a lot of imagery in all kinds of interactions, and in medical interactions, there is a lot of imagery, either implicit or explicit. And, and part of the implicit imagery in the way that we approach medicine as a culture is that diseases are separate from us. And in being separate from us, it takes away our power to do anything in relationship with them, if that makes any sense to you. So the idea that lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or this or that or the other named disease, it's like a thing in itself. It's like it has its own life. It's actually very much like an ex, it's like a discarnate being that comes and grabs you out of the blue for no reason at random and you have no power in relationship to it your your main chance is to root for the doctor and hope that you have a good doctor who knows what they're doing and it's extremely disempowering okay it doesn't mean that you made it up and it doesn't mean that you brought it on yourself but to, to be able to have an experience like this woman shared with us where, you know, everything you read about lupus, it's incurable, it's chronic, it goes this way, it goes that way, as if it exists in a vacuum. And I have a problem with that. You know, how come all these diseases have institutes? You know, they have huge foundations and institutes for the diseases. I, they don't have them for the people who have the diseases. Now, that may be cutting hairs a little bit, but it's also there's a certain truth in that, okay? Because it's like the diseases live on their own. I've never seen any of these diseases without a person attached. 
And the way that a person responds to those diseases can, on a daily level, make a huge difference in how the person experiences that disease and sometimes can make a huge difference with how the whole process unfolds. And people can learn from illnesses and so on and so forth. I've had that happen many, many times. I really appreciate you sharing that. It's something that's almost completely unexplored in our approach to medicine, which is very, everything's separate. Everything's out of our control. We don't have a relationship to it. You know, we completely ignore the healing. You know, we we ignore the fact that there's something inside every one of us that made us from nothing. And when you stop to really think about that statement, that there's something that made you from nothing, that's pretty powerful. And that has helped you heal and recover or cope with everything that you've experienced this far in life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. It's a very powerful system. You know, whether you want to call it our healing system, our balancing systems, our coping systems. And this kind of, this way of getting quiet, looking inside and connecting with it, the imagery is the most direct way that I've ever found yet to connect with that and to make sense of that and to kind of learn to work with the healing abilities of your body in relation to whatever it is that you're dealing with, be it an illness or a stressor. Your brain is the greatest pharmacy in the world. There's, your brain creates molecules that we only dream about replicating. You know, there are the endorphin molecules, the pain-relieving molecules that your brain makes, some of them are thousands of times more potent than morphine. And, you know, if you can just find a way to get one drop of that stuff out, that can take care of a whole lot of pain. They're also regulating of a lot of a lot of signals. So there's a, we believe there's a brain chemistry that probably shifts. There's certainly a nervous system balance that shifts. When you shift from that sympathetic fight-or-flight pattern to I can let go now. It's safe. I can let go. There's nothing out there to worry about. Because when you're immersed in the imagery, you're not even thinking about what's out there. You're completely inside. So there is a, both a nervous system shift, an autonomic nervous system shift, and I think also a brain chemistry shift. And it's rela- it tends to be very relaxing, and it tends to be refreshing. When people do meditative techniques, relaxation techniques, with imagery, without imagery. I I just love imagery because it's so quick, it's easy, it's non-secular, it's compatible with almost every religion and philosophy. It's daydreaming, it's natural, it's easy to learn, you know. And, you know, if you can do that, dip in and out of that deeply relaxed state once or twice a day, your whole stress thermostat starts to starts to shift and your tolerance goes up and your confidence that you can just get out of it periodically really helps. And it can be very, very powerful. And, you know, the interesting thing about this guided imagery in relation to what you said, which is it feels like you took a Valium or a tranquilizer, is that I never used the word relax once in that. There was no, there was nothing about even relaxation in that. It just shifts you automatically. Two more comments or questions, and then we will adjourn, I believe. The way that I think about meditation, meditation, which is normally a process of focusing on something, whether it's your breath, whether it's your tip of your nose, your belly button, a mantra, 
a picture of Jesus, a candle flame, an imaginary candle flame, whatever you want, is kind of the anti-imagery, right? So meditation is a step towards saying, instead of following out all these worrisome and scary images that the brain may be full of, instead of following those, you learn to bring your attention back to a tethered place, whatever it is. And it can be your, whether it's any of those things I mentioned. So that you take 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and you bring your attention back to a neutral or a pleasant kind of thing. Okay? If you incorporate your breathing, that kicks in a whole other physiologic part of our relaxation because the breathing is breathing's like those dual controls on driver training cars. You'll automatically breathe enough to live. But if you breathe more deeply and more abdominally, it has a physiologic effect where it starts to shift you into that more relaxed uh, parasympathetic autonomic state. So the combination of the deeper breathing and not following out all those images and worries you know, results in a relaxed state too. It's kind of the default position is relaxed and comfortable. That's the default position, okay? If, I sometimes joke, you know, if we all had imaginectomies, okay? So if we just went in and had our imaginations taken out, that's what, a lobe- that's what a lobotomy is. You would have almost no stress. People who are lobotomized have no stress. Whatever's happening around them, because they don't react emotionally, because the, connect- the emotional connections have been severed. So they're pretty happy, pretty consistent, not worried. They don't create stress. They don't worry about things in the future. They don't even know there is a future. So without imaginations, we would have almost no stress. You'd have to be actually literally confronted with a direct threat to your life to encounter a stress response. And that's why it's important to learn how to do something. Meditation to me, and there are, you know, there are different spiritual meditations that have different intentions and are used in different ways, but the basic process of one-point meditation is just let's stop imagining for a while. Let's just come back to the breath or come back to the mantra or come back to the belly button or come back to you know, the guru or whatever it is. And if you do that, if you do nothing but that for 10 or 15 minutes, your brain slows down, your autonomic nervous system balances, your blood pressure goes down, your heart beats slower, your blood doesn't clot so easily. That's the default position. But because of the way we live and all the information flow and all the things we know and learn and think about, we have to actually do, most of us have to do something active to allow the default position to come back in. And then from that default position, then there's a lot of other things you could do with your imagination, like think about what might stimulate healing or what you can learn from this problem or gather other resources and so on and so forth. Does that answer your question? So thank you all. I'll hang around if there's any individual questions. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.